Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on China and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm Jared Gross, head of Institutional Portfolio Strategy and guest host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Gabriela Santos, Global Market Strategist. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you so much, Jared. Great to be here with you all. Thanks, Gabby. So today, we are really excited to discuss a topic that is crucial for institutional investors, China's role in the global economy and its role within their portfolios. Gabby and I are going to discuss the maturation of China's economy and the integration of Chinese assets into institutional portfolios. There's been a lot of news recently with respect to the Chinese equity markets. But before we get there, we want to explore China's role in the global economy, its development as a nation, and the development of its financial markets as a precursor to understanding where we go from here. So let's start at the beginning, when China's economic growth began to really take off in the early 1990s. People started to take notice and started to contemplate how they should be addressing China as an investment issue. So, Gabby, how has this evolved over time, and where do you see the Chinese economy going today? It's absolutely incredible, Jared, to think back to 1990. Where was China 30 years ago? It was the eighth largest economy in the world. It had a GDP per capita of about $700, very low income, and it had 0% of its population in the middle class. In terms of drivers of growth, it really was primarily agriculture and manufacturing. What happened over the following decades was really incredible. China began opening up its economy to private enterprise, to the rest of the world, and it really shifted its economy from agriculture to manufacturing. To do so, of course, it invested a lot in the capital, the skills that it needed to make that transition and to really reap the benefits from those efficiency gains. Of course, China got an added boost from joining the World Trade Organization in 2001. And overall, from 1990 to 2010, China had an average growth rate of 10%. And it's incredible to see where it sits today. It's the second largest economy in the world, GDP per capita of $10,000, so it's middle income, 40% of its population now in the middle class. Tremendous, tremendous. Of course, its growth rate has naturally decreased. Over the past, let's call it five years or so, it's only had an average growth rate of 6.8%. In terms of where it's going, and that's always the most important thing, not where China is today, where it's going next quarter, but where does it see itself going the next 5, 10, 15 years? And it has a plan for that, and it's five-year plan. And we're in the 14th five-year plan. Over the next 5, 10 years, China wants to become the largest economy in the world. It wants to double its GDP per capita, and it wants to add nearly another half a billion people into its middle class, getting to about 70% of the population. In terms of drivers, it'll probably become an economy more and more driven by services, more by domestic consumption and innovation. And China knows it can't reap the same efficiency gains it did for the last 30 years. It needs to really focus on innovation and skills to be able to continue being a high-productivity economy. 
And we do think ultimately China will continue to slow structurally, but it will remain an engine of growth globally and continue to grow at a potential growth rate of 4.5%, which is, of course, (laughs) significantly higher than what we envision to happen in the U.S., which is much closer to 2%. Yeah, 4.5 would certainly be a growth rate that almost any other economy in the world would gladly trade for. Maybe just to jump off on a side topic here, we've obviously been going through COVID recently. We've seen the very sharp decline and rebound in U.S. economic growth. People may not be quite as clear on how China has weathered the storm. Certainly, Mm -hmm. it seems like their very aggressive policy response was effective. But how has COVID affected the Chinese economy? Yeah, and China did have, of course, what's where the pandemic began, of course, and it did have a zero tolerance approach to COVID, which meant it really wanted a minimal amount of domestic cases and it wanted a minimal amount of fatalities. And it was willing to use very aggressive tools to get there, right? It closed its borders to foreigners. It utilized very intrusive surveillance measures, and it implemented very strict quarantine and activity restrictions whenever cases flared up. It's interesting. It had a lot of success with that approach last year. Of course, it was painful once it was first implemented. China did go through a recession in the first quarter of 2020, first negative year-over-year growth since 1990. But it ended up controlling cases domestically. China went back to normal. Second quarter, China staged a full V-shaped recovery and was back to pre-pandemic levels by end of June of 2020. So first in, first out, very quick recovery, and has been growing for over a year at this point. Now, it continues with the COVID zero strategy, which is proving to be a bit more difficult this year because of the spread of the Delta variant, as well as some initial hiccups in the pace of its vaccinations. So China is still seeing some impact from some localized restrictions on activity, combined with some tightening they were doing earlier in the year in terms of monetary and fiscal policy. China's having a bit of a cyclical slowdown here in the third quarter. It might not grow at all in the third quarter on an annualized basis, but we do expect it to pick back up in the fourth quarter and beyond and go back to those structural drivers as it provides some policy support and as it's able to move on permanently from the pandemic. That's great, color. Thank you. So pivoting to the Chinese financial markets, you articulated this case of this very long, powerful growth trend from agriculture to industry to services, from export-led growth to domestic consumption. And the Chinese financial markets have, to some extent, followed along that path. But one of the things we observe externally is that the ability of investors to access the Chinese markets has been somewhat limited. And the capitalization of the Chinese markets is still probably disproportionately low relative to their GDP weighting in the global economy. So talk to us a little bit about how you've seen the markets evolve kind of alongside the economy and where we are today. Yeah, so the growth of China's local markets, and here thinking about equity and bonds, has been a bit more recent than the development of their economy per se. And I think if we just go back a decade and we think about where the markets were back then, they were very, very small, $4 trillion in market cap on the equity side, $3 trillion on the bond side. But that was 10 years ago. At this point, the equity market has grown three times. It has a market cap of $12 trillion, and its bond market has grown sixfold, with a market cap now of $19 trillion. And that really puts markets as the second largest in the world in China, both on the equity and the bond side, only lagging behind the U.S., 
So tremendous, tremendous progress. But there's still a lot to come going forward. In terms of size, its equity market is still only a quarter of the size of the U.S., and its bond market is still only about a third. So there's a lot to do to still grow these capital markets. And China implemented reforms last year, which might have gotten lost in the pandemic noise. It implemented new securities laws, for example, to try to grow its equity market. So it implemented an IPO registration-based system to allow it to become easier, more transparent for companies to go public in Chinese local markets. So we should see that help the growth of its equity market. It's also about the actual development of the structure of the market itself. The equity market is still very retail heavy. Retail investors are 80% of equity market trading. So China's also implementing reforms, wealth management reforms, for example, to try to institutionalize that market more, to have it be a bit less sentiment-driven, more fundamental-driven, and less volatile over time. On the bond side, in terms of structure, it's still very much a market dominated by domestic banks, by buy-and-hold investors. So liquidity is really thin. And China's also implementing reforms related to these asset management reforms to get different types of investors participating in the bond market that can help improve liquidity. And the last thing I'll mention about these markets is Really, over the last five years or so, it's become a lot easier for foreigners to also access them, right? It was back in 2014, China launched its first Stock Connect program, linking Shanghai and Hong Kong and the rest of the world. And that makes it a lot easier for foreign investors to buy really a large chunk of domestically listed Chinese companies. And then a few years later, 2017, China launched the Bond Connect program to allow also foreign investors to buy local currency bonds a lot more easily. And with that, index providers started including A-shares as well as Chinese local currency bonds into the indices. And now China's 40% of MSCI-EM and 8% of the global Bloomberg Barclays AG. Still not the right weight, we should point out. Well, and I think you touch on an important issue, which is the institutionalization of these markets is what will ultimately make them attractive to foreign investors, at least at the institutional kind of portfolio level. And maybe if you could comment a little bit on the mechanisms by which foreign investors have accessed China. You mentioned some of the structural reforms that have made it easier, but obviously most investors are going through managed funds, maybe not so much direct accounts, and and having kind of intermediaries handle this on their behalf. What are you seeing in terms of the mechanisms by which U.S. or European or other developed market institutional investors are allocating capital into the Chinese markets? What we see is when we look at certain surveys, we actually see that some investors still have no exposure to these local markets, the A-share equity market or the local currency bond market. A recent Cambridge Associates survey showed that global investors benchmarked to the ACWI, about a third of them had just no exposure to local markets. So still a significant share. In terms of the exposure we see investors having, it tends to be as part of a broader emerging markets allocation. So allocation to what's included within what MSCI defines as the EM equity universe and China's role within that, as well as what index providers, whether it's Bloomberg Barclays or JP Morgan, considered to be a part of the bond side for emerging markets. And it's really interesting because we mentioned at the onset that 
the weighting of these local markets and of China overall is still not the right size. So what that means is that actually some investors have no China and even investors that have that EM allocation to China still don't have enough, still don't have the right size. Well, and let's just take a jump off from there and get into the internals of these markets a little bit, because I think that's also very interesting. When you look at the distribution by economic sector or in corporate sectors, there's quite a bit of difference between the offshore Chinese markets and the types of companies that are represented there and the onshore Chinese markets. And it seems that as the economy evolves and diversifies and becomes more about consumer demand and services and internal consumption, many of those sectors that have prospered in the offshore markets may become less meaningful. And some of those sectors that are predominantly represented in the onshore markets, the A-share market, are going to become even more important. And so maybe speak to that a little bit and how that weighting challenge that the MSCI model has sort of forced investors into maybe leaves them underexposed to certain key sectors. Yeah, that's a really good point because investing in Chinese equities is a bit of an alphabet soup. And for a long time, investing in Chinese equities meant just investing in companies listed in Hong Kong or in U.S. stock exchange, so eight shares or ADRs. And it was really only mid-2019 that MSCI started including A-shares because of the Stock Connect program and all these improvements of opening up to foreign investors. But it's interesting, the weighting of A-shares is about 5% within MSCI-EM today, but that's not the right weight. MSCI is only giving a 20% inclusion factor to A-shares if it really gave it the right size. A-shares should represent about 20% of MSCI-EM. And that does lead to, I would say, two distortions in portfolios allocation to China. The first is sector. As you mentioned, the eight-share market, the ADR market, the offshore market does tend to have some more representation of old economy sectors like banks, industrial companies, some old-school traditional energy companies versus the A-share market tends to be more dominated by new economy sectors. So exactly, domestic consumption, technology, and the like. And that's only going to increase, right, with these new IPO measures, with the pull that China is making for new innovative companies to be listed domestically. So whether by choice or not, it's likely that these new economy sectors will grow and grow in representation domestically. So if we want exposure to these exciting growth themes, A-shares is the way to go. And portfolios at the moment are structurally underweight, those kind of sectors in China. And the other one is from a portfolio construction standpoint, A-shares have something else to offer, which is very low correlation to other markets. So 0.4 correlation to the S&P 500, 0.5 to EM. So there's a benefit of having a more local-driven market, which is that it, it beats to the sound of its own drum, right? It, it moves based on China, sometimes for the bad, sometimes for the good. So it helps with also diversification. So just having that EM or that passive allocation to China does end up leaving investors underweight the exciting growth sectors and also missing out on some portfolio construction benefits. Yeah, I think the correlation issue is key because if you look at correlations between the broader global markets and, say, U.S. markets, if you're a U.S.-focused investor, the broader ACWI index is highly correlated to the U.S. Even ACWI EM is relatively highly correlated. It's almost a 0.8 correlation. 
And the China index, as defined by MSCI, is better. It's about 0.6, but it really gets better when you go down into these A shares. And given the structural underweight that you've described, investors are missing out on some of that benefit, not just from the bottom-up opportunities that you're talking about to get into some of these more exciting growth opportunities coming out of China, but simply to diversify their portfolios and have a meaningfully uncorrelated source of return which is not that easy to come by. And so the cure, I suppose, in the near term at least, until the MSCI benchmarks are perhaps more rationalized, is to run a dedicated onshore A-share type investment strategy in parallel to what is typically an MSCI-style emerging markets benchmark. Exactly, to be able to actually right-size China's local market size and reap all those benefits. And the last thing I'll say is maybe the correlation rises a bit over time as you get more foreign participation, but it's really unlikely to rise to the kind of levels that we see in the U.S., for example, with global markets, because China is still very much its own engine of growth. It goes through its own economic and policy cycles, its own reform cycles. So that diversification benefit is unlikely to change very soon. Well, I think when I've spoken to clients over the years about investing in this direction, I think there has always been a hurdle to get over, which is the inclusion of China within the broader emerging markets space. And for many decades, investors have been in and out of emerging markets. And there's certainly some scar tissue over previous crises, not so much in China, but in other parts of the emerging markets landscape. And, you know, the returns have been choppy. They've tended to be very positive at points in time, but there's also been a lot of volatility. And I think to some extent that exasperation with the broader emerging markets categories has impacted investors' willingness to invest in China directly. And so I think this idea of maybe lifting China out of those EM-focused benchmarks a little bit is an important theme for, if not the past 10, 20 years, certainly for the next 10, 20 years. And maybe I'll ask, is that something that you hear about that China, you know, because of its status as a increasingly developed economy, will at some point sort of graduate from these EM benchmarks and start to operate on its own? So I think there's the question of whether the benchmark providers get there. And we haven't heard anything from MSCI in that regard, whether it's about right-sizing the A-share allocation. It has no plans to get there at the moment anyway or about breaking out China from the EM benchmark. But I think what we're hearing from institutional investors is they're getting there on their own <laughs> without waiting for the benchmark provider. And as you mentioned, thinking about taking out a dedicated A-share sleeve to right-size China to get those return as well as diversification benefits. And I think on the bond side, we're still in early er days of that process. It's a market that started opening up more recently. And as a result, maybe for investors at this point, it still makes sense to get the allocation to Chinese bonds more through a broader emerging market debt allocation, but perhaps with an active, flexible EM debt manager, right, that can actually give China the right size and can really think about some of the benefits Chinese bonds provide, which are higher yields pickup as well as low correlation as well to other markets, but also taking into account some of the risks. The yield curve does move, there's credit risk, and of course there's the currency component as well. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think in terms of fixed income, the relative impact of some of those other risks, whether it's curve, rates, currency, and so forth, 
can overwhelm the yields as attractive as they are. And I think it is true that the Chinese fixed income markets do offer on a credit adjusted basis, a very attractive level of yield compared to most other EM and even some developed sovereigns. But yes, I mean, those yields are still relatively low in the context of history. And I think we have to be careful about piling in too aggressively there. So that sort of more diversified active approach within fixed income is more typical and probably will remain so. Whereas I think to your earlier point on the equity side, there is a bigger gap, I would say, in terms of the potential loss of future value if you don't cure that Chinese underweight, because, you know, the upside from so much of that domestic growth is going to be missed out on. And I think that's really what it comes down to is finding sources of growth and positive return in this kind of low return world are challenging enough. And when you survey the global economic landscape, China clearly stands out as a engine of growth for the next decade or decades. And to be underweight that sort of economic engine just does not feel like the right place to be. Absolutely. And I think eventually we'll get there on the bond side as well. But at the moment, I think that's a process that's a bit further behind the discussions we hear with equities, which are much more advanced at this point. So maybe that brings us back to current events. And obviously, in the last few weeks and months, there have been a series of headlines coming out of China with respect to, broadly speaking, the regulatory stance of the government towards various either individual Chinese companies or sectors within the Chinese markets. I think that's created some consternation among investors who maybe felt blindsided by some of those moves, although we can argue as to how blindsided they should have felt, given that the Chinese government does actually tend to telegraph some of these things a little bit. And, you know, it has potentially raised some questions about sort of investability going forward. If we've now introduced this sort of wild card of sovereign regulatory risk, how comfortable do we feel owning the Chinese equity market? And so walk us through your thoughts on that, and in particular, where you see the weight of regulation falling in terms of sectors and onshore, offshore markets. Yeah, so I think this recent episode, this regulatory tightening cycle we're in, first of all, to answer the question, yes, we still believe China is investable and all of the arguments we made previously still hold. But two things that are important takeaways from this, I think number one is there are also downsides to investing in China and it does come with higher volatility. And the second one is really the need to be very active in China, and not just by choice, but by necessity. Overlaying investing in China with ESG considerations is also a risk management exercise at this point. In terms of backing up that argument that China is still investable, I think rather than looking at each regulation as an individual random headline, I think we should really put it together as a piece in the broader mosaic of what China's trying to do here. And it really is trying to use regulations to make sure that the quality of growth remains higher than it used to be. So really to focus on domestic demand and tech innovation. And tech innovation for China is not social media apps or apps in general. It's hard technology like 5G, AI, semiconductors. So a difference between regulations of the internet sector versus very loose supportive regulations of hard technology. It's also aiming to improve more and more the quality of life for Chinese people, right? And that really focuses on regulations that protect workers and customers and suppliers and also regulations that help to lower the cost of living. 
especially prices of things like education and healthcare, as well as housing prices. So that's ultimately the plan here. And in line with what we started about, what China's plan for the next decade is for its growth. But it doesn't mean China wants to completely rethink the role of private enterprise, private capital, and foreign investors. They still need those in order to accomplish these goals. And that's really the message that China is trying to deliver to investors is it's not a complete rethink of the role of private capital. It's really just putting it in context. Ultimately, of course, balancing profit and social goals. I think it kind of caps margins for some companies in China, but you still have the offset of very high revenue growth potential for new economy sectors. So net-net, you can still have an attractive return for Chinese equities and a pickup over developed markets. Well, I think that is just a a healthy reminder that the Chinese government engages in economic planning on a time horizon and cycle that we, you know, here in the United States or in most Western economies are not accustomed to. And that very long-term approach, while it may result in some inefficiencies, they may not have their aim squarely on target in all categories, it really does inform everything they do. And as you said, In certain sectors, it probably caps the upside because they simply won't allow certain activities to grow too big too fast. But stability over the long horizon is really the goal. And I think maybe in concluding, that's something investors should be mindful of as well, which is you have to think about China as a long-term investment. You are playing the long game to take advantage of this growth and development story that, although it has been going on now for 30 plus years, Mm is still probably only in the middle innings, and there is lots to go. And so there will be hits and misses here, but the decision to be exposed to China as a long-term investor is a pretty critical one and something I think investors really need to get right. So maybe with that, we can wrap it up. And I will say, Gabby, thank you so much for joining today. This has been a pleasure, and thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jared, for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you very much. Recorded on September 15th, 2021. Not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for informational purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. 
It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 1976015865K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2021, JPMorgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved.